Welcome to The Dispatchist, a friendly conversation about hell and some other stuff. We're still recovering from our trip to SatanCon. From a podcast perspective, this was the first time that all three of us were on a stage together. Uh, Jamin's microphone was unusually awful, and I've lost a few good jokes from him, but it was a really neat experience overall. At the end, we had some time for questions and answers, and I captured some of the audio for that, but in most cases, I'm just going to paraphrase the questions because it was just too much background noise to really capture them. Fair warning, there are a lot more swears than usual this time, so if Junior usually listens to our freeform rambling on medieval spiritual porn, sensationalized Sabbaths, and our perky brand of near blasphemy, you may want to cover their ears for a series of F-bombs. Hope you enjoyed this, it was a lot of fun, and we'll be back on probably the second with some thoughts on Jewish demonology and the critters of ancient Israel, so until then we will see you in hell. Thank you. Oh, I think we're good, actually. Y'all can all hear us, right? Excellent. Hi. Hello. So, my name is Jacob Williamson, and with me are my podcast co-hosts, Jamin. Hello. And Victoria. Hello. We are the hosts of the Dispatches podcast, a friendly conversation about hell. We do not believe you're going there. We just think it's fun to talk about. That's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff, and more, we had to condense 5,000 years into an hour. With interruptions. With interruptions. Uh, internal ones, mostly. Uh, so, if you're interested, we're keeping a lot of notes and things like that in dispatch.ist slash WGD, that's Writer's Guide to Demons. You can go there for more information, or just get up and leave, because that's most of the information we're going to talk through here. Uh, if you have any questions, just raise a hand, that sort of thing. Good. Ready? I think we're ready. Ready? I, wait, wait. go. Didn't have a watch. Okay, so, question one, what is a demon? And this is really the heart of this presentation, and it is virtually impossible to answer because the question changes, the answers change so much over time. This information, this slide is from a really fantastic book, Pandemonium, A Visual History of Demonology by Ed Simon, not the Ed Simon that wrote the Necronomicon, different Ed Simon. (laughs) And he would suggest that demons are primarily symbols. They can mean different contradictory things. No matter what your English teacher said, symbols have multiple meanings. And these symbols change over time. Demons change over time because they're tied very closely to political and religious upheaval and tension. The biggest time for religious tension is maybe 1540. It was very big in 300. And these times have a lot of exorcisms and a lot of possessions and things like that. And we do to today, which is a very strange thing to my mind. I blame Pazuzu. Yes. That was not the hand gesture I would have used. Um, <laughs> Wait, what was, the, what was the gesture? He had horns. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, no. Like, you need to have a scorpion tail. That is also not what I was thinking. Um, Long penis. Demons are somewhere between fact and fiction. They are in this mythic place where people kind of assume they have actual lives, like professional wrestling characters. Um, it's, you should not really call them, they're not magic, they're not literature, they're not fact, they're not history. They're this nebulous place in between, like most religion, actually. Some are very strong during a particular time period. Azazel and Beelzebub had their heyday, and even a fictional character like Mephistopheles can have his moment to shine. Um. Quick question, Jacob. Really? So, going to your point about Mephistopheles being a demon, I think I know where you're coming from, that you're sort of thinking of him as a Satan, but given his cultural significance, or their cultural significance, I think of uh, 
I think of Mephistopheles as more of representative of the Satan. I don't think he's a Satan, except for that one book series that said he was a Satan. Okay. I think he's more of a like a high-level demi-Satan, directly under Lucifer. He's kind of a Leonard. <gasps> Hail Leonard! Hail Leonard. So, we can answer the question, what does a demon look like? <gasps> Demons can look like kings, magic star people, dragons, guys on bears, bears on guys, your last boyfriend, he's a musician. Yes, yes. Green face butt guys, red beater pan, goats, goat guys, angels. What? Jacob, why is that in there? No. Um, because 2 Corinthians 14, for Satan himself manifests as an angel of the light. It's in the Whatever. Bible. It's in the Bible. Sure. Icy graphite red flags. Hot. Fire-breathing wolves. Hot. hot. Dudes. <laughs> Whatever this is. Hot. Whatever that is. What? What, uh, what, what? the fuck? What the hell? <laughs> oh, sorry. Is it okay to cuss here? I hope I didn't offend I anybody. I feel... Okay. All right. I Jamin, feel... did you do that? I, that one was not me. I feel dirty. <laughs> Things I can't show mom. Hi, mom. Giant flies, toilet guys, and pure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so one concept that y'all are probably quite familiar with, but I want to touch on several times, is the idea of the Goetia. This is the heart of modern Solomonic magic and modern-ish Solomonic magic. The tradition of the Goetia, in a sense, goes back to about 200 BC, uh, and it's one of the most sustainable the oldest sustained magical tradition. You could make arguments for this. Its origins are in a Greek, Egyptian, Hebrew, hodgepodge blurring of magical traditions, and it goes way, way back. I can cite sources on that later. Sure. Um, whoops, there are 72 named summonable demons. They're useful for spells. They're not the most powerful or popular demons, because like Leviathan isn't in there, Satans aren't in there, um, but they are toolbox demons. They're heavy, they're, uh, it reads like the monster manual, honestly. So, um, oh, can I say something about demons, yeah. Jacob? Well, that is, that's why we're here. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for demon-splaining this to me. Um, so, I get all my information from podcasts, as many of us do. Mm -hmm. And so, I was listening to this one podcast, and there was a guy who summons demons on the regular. And interestingly, I mean, I totally was like, yeah, this, makes, this is right. Oh, God, man, use your headphones. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he said that you should always summon demons and not angels because angels will fuck you up because they do not know anything about humans. I, I think the supernatural generally will fuck you up. I guess. Um, I've mm -hmm. heard other people say that angels are like computer programs. They're very direct. They're messengers and messengers only. But when Yahweh needs a free agent with thought and intelligence, he mm -hmm. will summon a demon up. So angels are chatbot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, good to know. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Which of these squares contains an I? <laughs> uh, some of the Goetia's greatest hits, we've got Baal, we've got Paimon, very popular these Hereditary days. Hereditary and headlessness. Yeah, they did bring headlessness into a new year. Mm -hmm. yep. um, Asmodeus and Astroth. Astroth is incidentally the, a, the demon of the Americas. And something you might not recognize, Amon, Andromelech. Uh, Andromelech is interesting. He used to be a kind of a god. His name means the Magnificent King. But when things got really weird in the 18th century, he becomes Hell's uh, wardrobe manager, like Taylor. Um, Jacob, I have a question about that. Uh -huh. What did the devil wear back then? Prada. Um, <laughs> I, th I think this makes Andre Malek, who is also extremely cute, uh, one of my short list of gay demons at this point. 
jump to Mesopotamia. Now, the world of Mesopotamian myth, which is kind of where the idea of big supernatural thing comes and destroys everything, comes from. This goes back to about 5000 BC, uh, the oldest written documents we have, the oldest civilization that we have like a strong written records of. And a lot of those written records are magical and religious. That... Yes. Okay. <laughs> that goes back about 2500 BC or so. Most of Mesopotamia is where Iraq is now. It's the home of ancient empires like Sumeria, Assyria, Canaan, very important. Canaan has like 130 gods, and it was centered around Israel and is the source of the Jewish faith. Uh, Abraham himself was from Canaan. It's a distinctly urban mythology. Uh, there's the first cities are there, and each city or city-state has its own divine patron. The gods live in the city. Their powers are gifts of civilization, metalwork, kingship, prostitution, hair and makeup tips. Yes. Uh, the underworld is a city. Civilization is good. Wilderness is bad. And the demons come from this wilderness space between the land of the living and the land of the dead. That's where you find demons. Can you say liminal? Liminal. Liminal. Take two drinks. <laughs> um, we. I'm gonna let you interrupt me now. Oh, you're gonna let me interrupt you? Yeah, I'm nice about that. Um, actually, uh, I just wanted to talk about whether or not demons were worshipped. Demons. I think kind of the Mesopotamian de definition of demon involves things that were not worshipped. Do I have the next slide? Yes, you do. I do. I do. I skipped so it. So I, I, I would like to push back on that. Okay. Because I think. Okay, so demons have cults. So what is the difference between a cult and worship? Kool-Aid. What? <laughs> I don't necessarily think that demons in this period had cults. They tended to be kind of malign, chaotic wilderness forces. What about snakes? Snakes aren't, well, I was going to say snakes aren't demons, but they are demons. Yes, snakes uh, are ambiguous. Okay. And I am all, I'm just saying this to... Uh, be able to say the new word I learned? Ophialtry. Wor worship of snakes. <laughs> worship we'll of there, snakes. Okay, so worship of snakes would be a cult. So cults I'm are, right. Yeah, historically cults are kind of small and extreme. I should listen to you before you say things. <laughs> cults are historically small and extreme groups. If mm -hmm. there were people worshiping demons, that would have been a cult, but I don't think they generally did. Lamashtu was a goddess and then became a demon, so I don't know, maybe? But I think the rule is generally demons aren't gods, and one of the differences is they aren't worshipped, and that's what makes them a demon. They're wilderness spirits, they serve the gods frequently, lesser things, like the demons we'll see later on, and they bring death and plague and insanity and all that bad stuff. That's all kind the, of the rule. Oh, They're difficult. That's bad? Hmm? <laughs> that's bad? Insanity? Yes. They're difficult spirits. Uh, we have a lot of starter pack demons today. Uh, two that I like to uh, launch with from Mesopotamia are Lamashtu and Pazuzu. These are a pair of demons that have been locked in epic combat for thousands of years, but really only since 700 BC. Um, Lamashtu is one of the big name child killer demons. She was a goddess originally. This is a demon of child death, infertility, all that sort of thing. And if you think about it, in ancient Mesopotamia at this time period, like 2500 BC, the entire population of the world was about the same as the greater Boston area. So fertility and reproduction is fabulously important. One plague could wipe out the species. So she's a child killer demon, a goddess, a powerful female force. Uh, she's an ancestor of Lilith, and she was a completely terrifying figure. And if you want to fight a terrifying figure, you need a demon with a, a male principal demon with a really, really big scorpion tail. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Pazuzu's legends say that he's ancient, the son of the demon that Gilgamesh slew, but in practice there's no evidence of him before 700 BC or so, and he was extraordinarily popular then. You get so much Pazuzu merch because he was created to fight Lamashtu, and as a common Mesopotamian and Egyptian demon principle, fight evil with evil. Yeah, and he was also in The Exorcist and a lot of other stuff, and he should really have his IMDb page. So, oh, yeah, well. there we go. Okay. <laughs> well, um, okay. Pazuzu on IMDb. Uh huh. Forward, skipping forward like fifteen hundred years to Lilith. There was a great Lilith presentation yesterday, and I don't want to step on it too much or no. repeat too it's much amazing. because a lot of y'all were there. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. I wanted to go home and burn my slides after that. It was mm-hmm. so well designed. Um, Lilith takes the child demon. The ch- Lilith takes the child killer demon thing. She really makes it her own. Uh, she's strongly associated with owls and screech owls, and she makes appearances in Ezekiel as a demonized wildlife figure. Uh, again, civilization good, wilderness bad. In yes, Jacob, can yeah. I make a, a suggestion? Actually, this is more of a suggestion than a question. I sure. think we should have a drinking game. Okay, where. Anytime we mention that a culture thinks women brought evil into the world or um, it gets rapey, I think we should all take a drink. And so this is one of those moments to take a drink. I'm yes. going to need a bigger glass. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, she appear- Why does she have scary feet? She, <laughs> so in the Bible, the word Lilith, which kind of means night spirits, is also interchangeable with the idea of owls. In one of her first appearances, Liliths, plural, are perched in a tree. Um, and uh, the Bible, depending on your translation, less mythical Bibles will like, render it as owls instead of Lilith. Um, she's a screech owl in particular, a desert owl. In the story of Adam's first wife, she kind of takes the name of God and uses it to turn to a wind, fly away on the wind. So again, a very birdish sort of image. Uh, the Adam's first wife story, which is one of the most well-known Lilith stories, it's not biblical canon. It's about a 7th century text, 70 AD. It's a rabbinical satire, the alphabet of Ben Sirach. Uh, she's also mentioned rather heavily in the Zohar, which is one of the big books on, what you call it, Kabbalah. Um, I just lost a word there. Um, <laughs> She's, she's like the other woman for the entire universe in the Zohar. Uh, if she was reconciled somehow with God, with creation, then the world could end. I understand that's a good thing. I don't know. Is Jacob? Yes. Is this a good time to talk about vulvas? It's always a good time to talk yes. about vulvas. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hail vulvas. All right. So... Um, again, we don't want to step on Amanda's presentation because uh, she's a genius and um, we are just following in her shadow. But yeah, so Lilith was this figure that held everything that men feared about women and their sexuality. Um, and I just want to point out, yeah, so things like non-procreative sex, sex that pleases women. So men are terrified of that. Adultery. Adultery. Loss of power. Bad hair. Death, bad hair. <laughs> Scary feet. Scary feet. <laughs> no foot shaming, Jamin. I'm sorry. We talked about this. Um, so I just want to point out the Sheila Nagig figure, uh, kind of in the above the hot pre-Raphaelite uh, red flag. Um, <laughs> but the Sheila Nagig is this moment of reclaiming the power of the vulva and I think it's a really um, significant moment to see this in a Lilith uh, image because it sort of signifies something different. It signifies this subversion of the patriarchy. 
And in our resources, you'll see a really good book uh, by Pax, um, no, yeah. Faxnell. Yes, um, per Faxnell uh, about satanic feminism. So I'm just going to give a plug to that book because it's amazing. Lilith is at the heart of an amazing poly relationship in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. It is so complicated. It's got Lilith sleeping with Adam, Eve sleeping with Samael. Samael is Lilith's consort. The three demons of prostitution show up, and I believe Nama is also Lilith's consort. I need to learn more about that. Mm -hmm. And there's a rabbinical text where Lilith and Samael are described as Leviathan's humping. Hold that in your head. Uh, my favorite Lilith line is from one of her earlier descriptions, a, a girl with whom a man does not sleep in the same way as with his wife. Interesting. Yes. Possibly more exciting. Uh, she's become a modern kind of goddess of female empowerment. That's a very, I think, began in the 19th century along with kind of the romantic version of Satan. A lot of beautiful artwork from that period. Uh, it's not part of her ancient legend, but is definitely a part of who she is now. Mm-hmm. Brief skip ahead to Sulak. Uh, this is the Mesopotamian toilet demon. And if you think your bathroom is messy, Mesopotamian ones apparently caused insanity. And his name means dirty paws, which is awfully cute. I just want to point out that he's also the patron demon of your uh, pervy uncle. Right. So. Yeah, your pervy uncle. Because there's a class of Mesopotamian demons called the lurker demons. They like hide and things like that. They make civilization dangerous. Skipping ahead to ancient Judaism. We could talk about this for hours. We won't. Um, <laughs> we do on the podcast. We do on the podcast. We're, we're in the middle of this for like about mm -hmm. four weeks now. Yes. Um, any talk about ancient Israelite demonology is going to hit a wall because there really isn't one. Uh, they borrow their demonology whole cloth from the Canaanite religion. And then that was promptly repressed by the Orthodox Jewish faith that was growing. So adopt demons, ignore demons. Uh, fundamentally, the religion of ancient Israel was, I, I'm looking at you because I like you. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Uh, fundamentally, it was brought in from the Canaanite culture. I like you too, Jamin. No, no, he doesn't. Uh, with a very reduced pantheon from 130 gods to like five gods. There was El, the bearded sky king, nice old guy. El's wife, Asherah, Baal, the brave warrior, uh, the invent his inventively named wife, Balat. Uh, Yahweh, who's a scary thunder god from the bad side of town. He doesn't have a wife, so he steals Asherah. And there's maybe death in the sea and some minor gods. The, a big theme here, a big theme here is the gradual change from small pantheon, local polytheism to monotheism uh, up against the entire world of polytheisms in the area. Um, this is kind of a story of like the development of monotheism to weak dualism because we can't explain evil without the devil. And there's a lot of weird fallout here because Gradually, the pantheon becomes smaller and smaller until it's just Yahweh. So first, Yahweh and El kind of merge, and Asherah becomes a pole. Do you want to take a drink? Oh, yes. Thank okay, you. thank you. <laughs> I was lulled into slumber by your sonorous well, voice. Well, actually, Asherah becomes the tree in the Garden of Eden. Oh, that's right. Yeah, definitely take a drink. Mm -hmm. um, getting Baal out of the pantheon was really hard because he was very popular, and he was like Yahweh's brother. So Baal is one of the biggest demons out there because the Israelites hated him so much because they were trying to consolidate their religion uh, and get, it, get, <laughs> get the Baal worship out of Judaism <laughs> where it started, practically, for mm -hmm. them. Um, There's so many demons named Baal or variations of Baal. Beelzebub, Belphegor, Baal, Beleth, so many. Um, and there is also never a time when Israel and the Jewish people aren't being taken over by a huge empire or recovering from being taken over by a huge empire. There's so much cultural trauma there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Breathe. 
concept, the divine council. Um, you might have, if you've read your Bible, you might remember in the Psalms, there's this line about God sitting at the table of gods at the head of it. Early Israelite religion, not Judaism, but Israelite religion was polytheistic. Uh, the concept of divine council is uh, a big one. That is that there is El or Yah or the divine spirit at the top, and then this constellation of various spirits underneath him that serve him. Uh, the Bible says that God made humanity in his image, but it uses the plural form of him. Uh, so it's God made man in our image, not my image. Mm -hmm. And that's good to know because the divine council contains angels, it contains gods, it contains the Mesopotamian gods, it contains the spirits of the dead, it contains demons. Theoretically, it was going to, con to have humans in it as well, ultimately, and that's still part of kind of the religious plan in like Jewish subtext. Um, but angels and demons are fundamentally the same idea. Hmm. There's not actually a word for demon in no, in there isn't. Hebrew. It's just, it's just uh, kind of spirit. Bad, yeah, bad spirit, yeah, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, we'll have a guest appearance, I think, now from Beelzebub. Very popular. Everything's coming up, Beelzebub. There should Thank be you. a song about flies next. <laughs> uh, Beelzebub, is, uh, his name originally was probably something like... Ba hmm? Was Beelzebub probably something hands. like Baal Zebel, mm -hmm. uh, God of the Great Hall, Chief of Heaven. But somehow his name got changed, somehow. His name got changed to Balzebub, or Lord of the Dung Heap, you waggy Hebrew scribes, and it just stuck. He's one of the big Satans in the ongoing story of the development of the Satan archetype. There's a lot of different Satans. Satan itself is just kind of a loose title. And Beelzebub was one of the earlier ones. Uh, he's frequently described as the king of hell. Yes. Yes. There was a great story about this. It's from the Testament of Nicodemus, about 275 AD. Uh, so there was that story where Jesus died on a tree or a stick or something like that. And a couple, a little while later, um, people were wandering around uh, Jerusalem and they saw zombies, uh, these two dead guys, and they were like, hey, dead guys, what are you here for, dead guys? And they said, oh, we're here to talk about Jesus who recently died. We went to see him. Oh, dead guys, that's fascinating. Where is he? And they said, well. And so we'll flash downward to Beelzebub and Satan and Lady Death hanging out on the front porch of hell. And Satan turns to Beelzebub and says, oh, you'll never, you'll never guess what I did. It was so awesome. And... Beelzebub says, yeah. So that guy, that Jesus guy, yeah, I got him good. What'd you do to him? I had him killed. Oh. So let me get this straight. The, the Jewish guy that raises the dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had him killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To come here. Uh -huh. To the land of the dead. You don't see a problem with this? Then they look over there, and this purple light is rolling towards them. And Jesus comes down in a cloud of angels. And Beelzebub takes two steps back and kicks Satan out of hell. And Jesus comes down, and the gates of hell smash down on him. And Jesus jumps up and down on Beelzebub and says, I am here now. I'm taking over. And Beelzebub says, hi, welcome. We're glad you're here. Do you like the Satan thing I did for you? He says, yes, I do like the Satan thing I did for you. And for that, I will make you the regent king of hell until I come back. And he flies away with thousands of the souls of the blessed dead, and that's what Jesus was doing after Easter. 
Yes, and painting eggs. And painting eggs. I think it was laying the eggs. I get confused. <laughs> column A, column B. I don't know. I like the colors. Azazel, there is no good artwork of Azazel, by the way. I was had this period where I was trying to find a lot of actually, like, time period appropriate artwork for these characters. And then I learned that there's this rule against drawing pictures of the sacred in Israel. So there, that was a funny thing to learn that day. Um, Azazel, uh, his name means possibly, he's the king of the hairy goat demons. I like that. Uh, he's the scapegoat demon. His name means something like strength of God or possibly Azazel, which means that the goat goes away. Oh, I didn't know that. Name in the microphone, the jokes carry better. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> You're kidding. Um, oh. oh. I, uh, in Azazel's first appearance, in, Azazel's first appearance that anybody has any record of is in Leviticus. Uh, he's a part of the scapegoat ritual, the Yom Kippur ritual, which is a situation where uh, the Temple of Jerusalem, a thing I learned is that like when you say the Temple of Jerusalem, you're really saying the entire Hebrew faith at the time because it was so central. Mm -hmm. okay. um, yeah. Uh, at the Temple of Jerusalem, two goats, both perfect, were chosen, and they were diced, and the one that won was sacrificed to Yah, which is a good thing. The other is loaded down with the sins of the people and sent out into the wilderness to Azazel. Or, I don't know whether Azazel is the ritual itself, or the wilderness, or a demon, or a very specific cliff that you would throw a goat off of. It's hard to say. Um... Later, Azazel appears as the second in command of a group of angels called the Watchers. I'm not really sure if angels is the right word there. The Watchers, uh, you probably know this story, made the decision to marry and settle down and have children with these super hot, hot daughters of man, which inevitably leads to demon babies, uh -huh. the Nephilim. And through the demon babies dying in the great flood and their spirits escaping their souls become demons and that's how demons entered the world true story jacob yes. i'm gonna i'm gonna have to press pause it's on fine. you for a I moment was dehydrated anyway. and uh so it's time to drink thank you everybody because there's a lot of uh blurred lines here in many stories it was consensual um that the uh as jacob put it hot Girls of Earth, I think, mm -hmm. were your exact words that you will pay for later. That was what um, I said, yeah. But sometimes it's consensual. Sometimes the women have seduced the angels. Oh. Um, so they're the bad guys bad bringing evil into the world. And sometimes it's just plain rapey, like most mythology. So, I don't know. It's um, problematic at best. Victoria, can I ask you a question? No. <laughs> okay. Jamin, why am I the patriarchy today? <laughs> uh, thank no. you. Um, so the story of the Watchers is actually tied to an older myth. I think this is really neat because as far as I know, the Watchers are like the earliest demon myth I knew. But the Watchers are tied to a group of, of half-man, half-god, half-fish sages in the Mesopotamian uh, Canaanite mythology. They're called the Apkalu. And these characters taught humanity the secrets of heaven, including hairstyling, very important. Um, and because they did that, they were able to save humanity from the Great Flood, which was actually sent by the gods to punish the Apkalu. Um, so this is really a situation that's a little less misogynistic and a little bit more kind of the gods and the demons are on our side. The, another word for the Apkalu is the Watchers. It's a very Prometheus story. Skipping ahead. And still misogynist. <laughs> 
you just don't like it. You don't have a fish coat. <laughs> you don't know what happened to me that one night. I don't. <laughs> Suddenly Satan's. Mm-hmm. I think y'all covered this last year, so we're just going to touch on this. Yes. It's about 300 BC. There's turmoil in the desert. Israel is taken over by the Assyrians, the Persians, and the Greeks in fairly rapid succession. Uh, The Greeks in particular give them the idea of the devil and lakes of fire, and the Persians give them the idea of dualistic theology and epic special effects and the end of days. And then they're briefly taken over by a Jewish traditionalist monarchy, and then Rome comes in and stomps everybody into the ground. Uh, And ideas that get adopted into the uh, growing Jewish faith uh, and the Hebrew Bible that's been kind of compiled in this period, uh, ideas of the God of destruction, the source of ultimate evil, the pit of fire, the apocalypse, the devil. Jewish writers start developing this elaborate myth and symbol set, apocalyptic literature, which is culturally therapeutic writing about why we're in this awful situation and what God will do to the bad people soon. And we flirt with the idea of where might evil come from if evil does not come from a god? And the answer is Belial, Mastema, Beelzebub, the dark angel. And all these ideas are kind of associated with the bad people over there. So the tradition of Satan and demons generally is very rooted in this kind of othering of the people over there. And we'll hold on to that because it never really goes away. Evil gets a name, but we're not going to settle on one name for about 200 years, I think. Before you switch, that man has a dolphin. <laughs> you can't unsee it now that you've seen it. Oh, yeah, the, he does. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Starting around the same time period, there was this incredible melting pot of religions. We've got 20 minutes. Um, and occult ideas. Greek took over the entire region. They love Israel. The Greeks love Israel. They love Mesopotamia. They love Egypt. And they create this religious fusion cuisine that free associates Yahweh and Zeus and Baal and Seth and uses them in magical spells. And an entire set of documents would bubble up 1,700 years later in the form of the Greek magical papyri. And they got super duper creative with language and wordplay and names and the identities of all this kind of God-level spirit stuff. They look pal- <gasps> It's a stater square! There's a crossword puzzle. <laughs> Yay! Jamin, you can't edit my slides anymore. Okay. Is that fair? Okay, thank you. There. Um, they got very creative with the, idea, with the names of these spirits. They fused them together in multiple languages. This kind of cast of wandering magicians would kind of combine these things. And they didn't really speak all those religions, these uh, names very well. I have been told that when there's like a lot of vowels in a row, it's actually being sung. So, doo-wah, doo-wah, sort of thing. Um, this is the uncouth name. And this is a tradition that sticks with demonology forever. Basically, it sounds much more exciting if there's an X or a Z in it. True. So, Jamin, can you tell us what that says? Hmm? Yes. You can pronounce that? <laughs> yes. Pronounce it. Oh. It's pronounced Chumley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh we're going to run out of time. Fair. Uh-huh. Okay. So this is like an occult name generation machine, and we start to see the spirit list that would populate the world of Solomonic demonology and the Grimoires later on, this hotbed of syncreti- synchronism and spirit appropriation. What is a daemon? This is the Greek word for, well, not the Greek word for demons. It's a word for these kind of sub-gods, servants, and messenger spirits, muses, nymphs, satyrs, the furies, these things that are not quite gods but serve them. They may bring wisdom and knowledge. They may be messengers. 
like angels. They may not. I don't think the Furies brought any real knowledge to the people they stomped on. All these ideas kind of fused together in a later convenient capsule for theology delivery, which is the Testament of Solomon, arguably the most famous magical text out there, I think, at this point. Um, the Testament of Solomon is likely a collection of Jewish medicine, magic, demonology, and folk myth repackaged by a Jewish Christian or just a Christian about 300 AD or so. It folds a lot of Hebrew legends in, but it lenses them through Christianity. So you get this very long list of demons that can be um, exercised by the name of a prophet that will come in the near future, yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, it's funny kind of time travel magic. So the story of this is that King Solomon is building his temple when he learns that a gay furry vampire demon is sucking the souls out of his hot, hot construction workers and, <laughs> and stealing their lunches. So Solomon prays. And St. Michael gives him a magical ring that controls demons. So he uses it to zap poor gay Ornius and makes Ornius zap Asmodeus. And then there's this parade of demons, 20 pages long. They trot on, they give their name, they say what they get up to and how to exercise them. And then Solomon uses demon slave labor to build a temple. And that's pretty much the story. Um, Jacob? God damn it. <laughs> no, I just want to point out that a lot of the labor uh, were demons that were coded as female. Um, so he had a lot of female demons doing his drywall and framing things out. But uh, key amongst those were the Pleiades, which was the personification of the constellation into the seven sisters, led by battle and their strife and hey, deception. <laughs> and their sneezy, dark, dope. Uh, Sorry, that's the seven deadly dwarves, so lots of similarities. This Pokedex style of demonology with demons and their controlling angels, it becomes the backbone of Goetic magic for quite some time, and Solomonic magic thereafter. There's actually a much longer tradition of Goetic magic. The word Goetia means uh, howling, which is kind of the doleful sound of a uh, necromantic priest intoning his spells. It's an ancient tradition. Somewhere around here, it gets turned into kind of this reverence of the big 72, which is kind of a downgrade in the terms of dignity and things like that. I don't know the story behind that, and I think experts in the field don't know the story behind that. Solomon will take us to the medieval era. We're crossing year 300 here, and the medieval, medieval era gets kind of a bad rap. It was about a thousand years of not nightmare, except for the plague and the famine and shit. Like today. Like today. Um, this period was a fantastic time for hell. People were taking voyages down there all the time. The vision literature story became like a major literary trope where angels would come and say, this is what will happen to the dead, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and Dante's Inferno kind of does it best. And frankly, there is no more vision literature after Dante's Inferno because he did it so well, he even added fart jokes. Um, but it was a really bad time for demons because, as we learned back in with Beelzebub, the demons had lost the war at this point. There's a concept, which I adore. I hope you can see. Oh, good, you can read that. Um, it's called the great chain of being. And that is the idea that there's a very strong hierarchy that goes from God to the angels to the demons. And then... And through this kind of militant arrangement of, I'm glad you can read the text, this militant <laughs> arrangement of um, heaven. And then that is repeated on earth with kings 
and lords and dukes in a very elaborate hierarchy. And then that is capitulated in the um, nuclear family where the husband dominates the wife and they have... Mm. <laughs> Drink. I need more water. I'm gay, by the way. I don't mean any of this. Um, <laughs> and then all of this is kind of re- recapitulated in the order of the uh, animals and plants. Lions are the king of beasts, by the way, because they have fairly human faces. That's all that really mattered. I don't know why monkeys aren't the king of beasts. Butternut squashes have human faces. Butternut squashes do not have faces. <laughs> Mine but you can do. Eat them, and you can't eat trees. <laughs> Should. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't eat trees. So hell, like heaven, was a feudal system led by nobility under an infernal king. At this point in time, demons are not really a big thing. They're troublesome and willful spirits, but they are part of God's plan. Like what they do is part of the big picture of heaven's story. It's to challenge humanity and test them. Um, they're background characters, really, and they're folk story monsters. This is the period of the, uh, where the merry hell idea comes around in a big way, where hell is kind of this playful place with lots of alcohol. Um, very Betty Boop hell, as far as I know. Um, and again, Satan had lost the war, and this really shows in medieval demonology, particularly, and I'm sorry about this one, particularly in their portrayal of Lucifer. The narrative surrounding the origin of evil changes a lot around 250 to 300 AD from the drowned baby demon souls bubbling out of the ocean to the myth of the uh, fall from heaven of one-third of the host led by Lucifer who tried to take the throne of God. This is very post-biblical. Um, this is year 300, Augustine, origin. The church fathers really push for this one. Um, it's a new... De- what? Yeah, that origin. <laughs> the one who castrated himself? I'm not comfortable saying this. Um, so the church fathers repurposed some of these old myths about a fall from heaven uh, to create the story of Lucifer trying to claim the throne of God. And uh, he's still kind of a crippled figure. He fell a very long way and smashed in the center of the earth. So you get um, Lucifer's and Satan's that are chained to a grate, endlessly roasting. The devil is frozen in a lake, mindlessly chewing. The devil is a great dragon, hollowed out, and the damned souls are living inside of his body. Eventually, Lucifer becomes this kind of more noble imperial Satan. But for now, he's having a really bad day. Um, and the devil really could have just kind of faded away at this point as a concept. He wasn't necessary. He wasn't doing the hard work. Um, the religious world was just too stable. Um, and then, and then uh, 92 Theses, the Gutenberg Press, the breakdown of church monolithic authority, demon, enemies of the church were everywhere. Mostly they used to be Christians, but now they're bad people, obviously. And all these, this activity was inspired by Satan. This is a peak demon period, possibly the peak demon period. The witch hunts start happening here. Um, France develops a pulp publishing industry. Yep. Evil. <laughs> Wait, publishing or? <laughs> yes. Um, and we get a very kind of split, divided idea of what a demon is. Uh, in the north, really, uh, demons are dangerous monsters that attack and possess. They're an anti-divine army. They're a physical threat, a physical and very sexual threat at times. You have succubi and incubi and half-demon cambions and a Satan that dances with witches and shows oh, his goatee's butt to be kissed. Five minutes. What? Five minutes. Five minutes? Mm-hmm. Until, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> and ravages them in the, uh, in the Black Mass. 
Um, King James has a chance to say, hey, is all this stuff really in your head? No, all this stuff is not really in your head. Really, these people are being boinked by goats in the night. Um, and Kramer writes the Malice Malifor Quorum, five minutes, geez, I'm gonna go a little over on that one. Uh, that's still question time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason for all this physicality of the demons and such is not so much to find witches and hunt witches, it's that if Satan is real and powerful, God is real and powerful. And if there's no God, there's no threat to God, then Christianity can't be reasonable, real. Um, the idea of the kings of, uh, kings of hell starts cropping up. Uh, this allegedly a witch uh, con- um, taken from witch confessions really from about 400 years earlier, anonymous stuff, the seven deadly sins. I never understood by Leviathan, who's a, basically a whale, is the princess of envy. That's kind of weird to me. He envies Krill. Envies Krill. <laughs> I'll take that. One spirit that really embodies this is uh, Leonard. Hail Leonard. Hail Leonard. Um, Leonard, the goat of the Sabbath, the master of orgies, a spirit in service to Lucifer himself, very powerful. He sleeps with all the witches tonight um, in goat form. He manages the entire unholy packed thing. He's the devil's answering service, and his name is Leonard, and we really like that. Hail Leonard. Hail Leonard. So fast. Um, on the other hand, you have the intellectual tradition of demons that would become the kind of the modern grimoire period uh, style. These are demons that you can work with. You can control them with angels or control them more directly with their names. I think Crowley kind of comes through this tradition. Crowley kind of comes through this tradition, although he gets rid of it very quickly. Um, the Guesha refined to a set of 72 standardized demons during this period. It is worth noting that a lot of these early writers of the grimoires were Christians. Not only were Christians, they were trying to understand the universe in their Christian faith through the Kabbalah, and the angels thereof, and that ties them to the demons. These are Christian writers, not just like trained in a college, but Christian writers. I think that's really neat. Um, the Gwesha refined to 72, which is like a magic number. I mean, it's um, like the number of angels in the Kabbalah is 72, your tarot card is 72, and 72 times five is 360, and that's the number of days in the year. It's magic. No one? <laughs> okay. Um, these demons, you can work with them. You can cash in on them because the grimoires are books you can sell, books you can expand on. If your version has 160 more Pokemon, it's going to sell really well. There's this kind of occult underground network of priests that can speak these foreign languages and they will sell you spells. They will sell you grimoires. Just don't burn them because that's really awkward. We don't like being burned. Um, so there's a lot of kind of this like on the fence. I'm not really an evil witch. Those are over there. I'm a scientist. But it's demonology for fun and profit, yeah, which is you, going to be our first book. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. Yeah, practice it with your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, go really fast. The French Enlightenment is where, where evil becomes quaint. Uh, we're in the uh, 1800s here, and a, this is a period where deism, atheism, and pantheism and universalism start coming into the air. It's a very egalitarian time. And during this period, we were going so fast, I'm sorry, four people would change demonology forever in a weird way. The first, <gasps> Alexis Vincent Charles Barrero de Terra Nim de Time. This man is batshit crazy. Uh, he wrote an epically boring 830-page autobiography that tells about how demons came, killed his pet squirrel, and flew up his butt. Um, he bases his demons very heavily on the French court system, which is why there's like a baker and a uh, wardrobe manager in hell. Uh, however, this fellow uh, wrote the Dictionary Infernal or compiled it. The Dictionary Infernal, if you don't have a copy, and it is in French, good luck, um, it's a massive volume of Fortiana 
and myth and demons. And I think a lot of the demons that we know today may not have survived the century without this book. Reasons for that. Um, but it's also very Catholic towards the end. Anyway, so the sixth edition of this book is heavily illustrated by Louis Le Breton, uh, who is a landscapist, but he also does these delightful images that are public domain and therefore all over uh, your scrapbook and products you'll find in that room. Look at Leonard. Mm-hmm. Oh, Leonard's on there. <laughs> Leonard. We like him. So he makes these whimsical things. The sixth edition of the Dictionary Infernal is incredibly popular. Three more minutes. Um, because of these One illustrations, more minute. one minute. Okay. Yes. Because of these illustrations, it is like mass market successful. Um, but he also incorporates all the weirdness from Brigoire and doesn't tell anyone. So when Charles, no, author Edward White, the tarot guy, compiles all this stuff, he says, "No, not beer yet. I love beer." Um, he says. He says, this stuff, strange stuff happens. All these things are part of what we know about demons. And he doesn't blame the insane person who had probably was burning his autobiography at this point because he had some therapy. Um, and A.E. White goes on to say, yes, this is all true. And it's from the 1600s, not in the 1800s. Um, and then Crowley does the same thing. And they kind of canonize all this weirdness. Does a horrible thing to my very close friend, Bjor, uh, who started out probably as a centaur or something like that, something nice and tame. Um, but he got described as like a starfish humping a lion. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, And because of that chaos, he becomes kind of the face of like crazy demon. Uh, He appears in a Disney film of all places or Little Nas X's shoes. I got this one from How Things Work. But but he he looks kind of insane now and that's largely because of these people and wait. Um, And now hell has a grand eunuch. You didn't know that, did you? Modern era. We're really going to spin through this. Uh, Crowley kind of picks oh, up demon. Hmm? Q and, yeah, I think we could. People probably know this. Okay, well, I'm just going to wrap up with okay, uh, Lucifer. Sure. No, Baphomet. Um, I am not going to say that Baphomet is a demon in this room. Um, yeah. But he inherits. He inherits parts from demonology and such from the ancient, like, othering of other people. Uh, he draws from the goat of Mendez, this uh, slander put on an Egyptian village where everybody boinked goats as part of a ritual. He comes from the Knights Templar that were accused of worshipping the head of an idol and boinking each other. He's goats. Goats are tied to so many, like, slander stories. Um, and he's born from all these things. Levy uses them to kind of cobble together a spirit of rational occultism and um, kind of self-determination of building your own identity. He's like a magical golem that can let you create yourself, and I think Mm -hmm. that's just fantastic. I want to close on a positive thought. We uh, talked earlier about how uh, mankind was made in God's image and that that was a God plural. Mankind is made in the image of many gods. And I did some counting, and there's maybe two instances of Yahweh and six or eight different Satans. So while we are made in the image of God, perhaps, we're much more made in the image of Satan. And I believe that's time for Hail Thyself. Hail Thyself. Hail Satan. And Savior. Lucifer. Leonard. Thank you. Bulbas. We do have a little time for questions. Um, And we'll be outside afterwards. But, um, and we skipped over so much stuff. I had to skip over all of Egypt, which was very dull. I'm sorry. (laughs) We didn't miss much. Yeah, no. Pharaohs, (laughs) Seth. Questions? There's a lot. Yes. You mentioned that during uh, the, like, medieval period, that a lot of these writers that were writing about demons are, or were 
Christian. <laughs> and um, I guess I want to ask a little bit uh, about how confident we are about that during the during like the hermetical revival. My impression, you know, we talked about when um, Pico and uh, some of these people had weird cosmologies, mm -hmm. and they were saying that they were a Christian because if you didn't say you were a Christian, stuff happened to you. And so I'm wondering if in some cases we're confident. I know that some of these people who were especially intent on translating the Picatrix and some of these things, they were obsessed with some really weird stuff. They were. Um, and I cannot address all of that because there's a lot, but some of the earliest um, angel-demon occultism stuff, Weyer, I think, and Goth, and some of the people around them, they were explicitly writing uh, with Christian uh, Kabbalah allegories, trying to reconcile this world with the Kabbalah and their faith. And this is where a lot of hermetic ceremonial magic comes from, this reconciliation of the occult and the Kabbalah and our lives. Mm -hmm. So those, pe those, those people originally were kind of explicitly writing to understand a universally Christian Kabbalah framework. It, it goes wild places from there for sure. Mm -hmm. um, there's a great book on Elizabethan uh, spirituality. We have got a lot of business cards if you want to take one. It's got our email on us. I can send you a great book on Elizabethan occultism that would answer some of those questions if you have the patience to slog through it. This was a two-part question. Part one was, is there any canonical description of what the Nephilim look like? They are not explicitly described. They are loosely described as giants um, and later cannibal giants. There's no clear description of them or really anything in the Bible. Um, we know that they're probably angel-ish, human-ish hybrids or maybe grandchildren, but we don't have anything beyond that they were large. And that, the description Nephilim, children of heaven, is actually also applied to entities like Gilgamesh, the kind of demigods as well. But there's no real description of them. They're big. And part two was, have there been any cultures that worship demons and believe they're good? I talked with the person a little later, and something I wish I'd said uh, on stage was that while there are definitely demons that were gods, they're lumped together with a lot of negative, troublesome spirits, that generally the idea of demon is bad spirits. It's a fairly recent interpretation that one might think probably positive, because the definition of demons, when there's a word for them at all, tends to be malign spirit. I think that any ancient culture that worshipped these spirits would probably not use the word demon. They would have used a more worshipable word. Maltheisms are really rare to the point of non-existence until you get to the last two centuries uh, where religious rebellion was more of an, a positive thing. There's a modern demonolo demonolatry movement that kind of um, treats demons like a pantheon you can draw on. It kind of fuses um, Goetic Solomonic grimoire magic with a more neo-pagan approach, and those people do worship demons. It's very transactional, um, like kind of like a god that you can shake hands with and make a deal with. Um, I don't know if worship is even the right word. It's kind of an exchange of goods and services and respect. Um, I can point you to resources on that as well if you're interested. This next one was a really fun question, but I lost a lot to the mic setup. In the online community, there's a lot of what we can safely call making shit up. How can you tell the difference between made-up stuff and concrete stuff? If you're on Reddit slash demonology practices, um, there's a guy named Corbett ATX, and he knows what he's talking about. Just listen to him. He's awesome. Give him money. Um, you can't, honestly. That entire world is packed with what that community calls uh, your personal gnosis or knowing or understanding, and it's a mixture. Um, and none of this stuff is really true. These are, I can say this here, y'all are mostly atheists. These are different people's ideas. It's like cookbooks copying cookbooks. None of it is really true. None of it is really false. Um, I personally say it's 
will it help your understanding of yourself and if you're a magical practitioner, can you draw good ideas for your own magic from it? Does this make sense to you? The question, is it true, is insane. And one of our running jokes on our podcast is, of course it's true, everything's true. I feel like you have two major ideas of demonolatry uh, when you go back far enough. The, um, the Greek magical papyri uh, fuse all these ideas of God and the divine and the semi-divine together. And that's a, a kind of a hodgepodge that's very like modern occultism. There's good stuff there. And... On the other hand, uh, the, the Testament of Solomon has kind of Christian-like backblow and paranoia woven into it. Those are also real ideas because a lot of these later ceremonial magical ideas are fundamentally Christian in origin. Um, what is true is so difficult because like any one spirit is so many different things. Samuel um, is Lilith's husband. He's the Metatron. He's another name for Satan. It's very hard to know what is true. I. I would, um, I, there's an author named Jake Stratton Kent who writes on the Goetia. He's fucking brilliant. Uh, he died recently, but his stuff is an amazing place to start. I would recommend his Encyclopedia of Goetia if you have a good, rigorous academic mind and do not have to take ADHD medicine like I do. He's awesome. Give him money? Uh -huh. Give him money? Give him money. He's dead. Give someone money. Give someone money. <laughs> And then part two was representations in the media, uh, particularly video games, uh, followed by what's your favorite demon representation, and later, uh, do you, what do you think of demon representation in video games, and I misgendered Paimon. Last, do you have a favorite demonic movie? Every single demon we name today is a cute Japanese girl in an anime. He is, he is. There's a... I have I have a um, a Japanese manga goesha. It's really really cute. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I think that a lot of these things will get people in the doorway of studying this stuff and kind of getting into the mythology, and that's really exciting. In practice, um, they're just names that are kind of hot swapped around power sets, which really honestly the goesha is too in many ways. Um, Paimon is a big one. He's a very, very powerful demon. They, they. Uh, Paimon, Paimon is a really interesting kind of transgender demon because he, she, they also is virtually identical to the demon Duchess Gimory. They look the same. They walk the same. Sometimes they even dress the same. Um, and it may be like this is a hot swapping demon because demons do change shape. And this might be a demon that willfully takes on two genders. That's kind of exciting. Favorite demon movie? Uh, I would say Hereditary. Hereditary, yeah, yeah. that one's really solid. Uh -huh. um, I mean, it's a horror movie, so it's not positive, but it's uh -huh. neat. Oh, there's a book, it's so cute, it's called The Kids Goesha. It's so cute. I will say that it's actually kind of fun to look up, um, you know, when you're looking at stories about like Persephone or whatever, and to find the kids' lessons on it, because you like the book of Job. <laughs> it's just laughable. But yeah, so there's a lot of weird stuff for kids out there about this stuff. We can um, have like two more questions yeah. super quick. Mm -hmm. This is a fairly short question. Where do you get information on the demonic hierarchies? One goes to Wikipedia and looks up demon hierarchies. Um, there's no one really agrees. Uh, there's about six different versions of the Goetia that have um, different top-level demons. There's usually like a set of like eight demon kings and queens that kind of occupy the top level. They're names you recognize. And then after that, it's um, 
it's just Pokemon all the way down. Um, and a lot of those names are just kind of made up as far as I can tell. Like there's nothing about Bure that I can find and I have looked very hard. Um, but there's a lot of different ideas. The ideas of the seven princes of hell is non-canonical. That's a like 14th century invention and it's based on I don't know what nonsense. Um, people write stories about these things and then the stories become true. It's hard to say. Um, but the article on Wikipedia about the hierarchies of demons is really good. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is copyright 2023 by The Dispatchist and is Creative Commons. You're welcome to reuse with attribution. Look for us on your favorite podcast app. Say hi to us on Twitter or Gmail at The Dispatchist, no spaces. Check out our website, dispatch.ist, for episodes, show notes, and a variety of hellish resources.